Home Institute exists to help in the great and continuing work of building a more equal, open, tolerant and independent Australia. I do not for a moment believe that we should set limits on what we can achieve together for our country, for our people, for our future. Welcome to the Whitlam Institute podcast. Welcome to Dedicated to the Dedicated, the exhibition about Whitlam, the arts and democracy. My name's Leanne Smith and I'm the director of the Whitlam Institute and I'll be your MC for this evening. We're not going to keep you too long down here. I know many of you are really excited to go upstairs and, and see the artworks, um, but we do have some wonderful people here to address you this evening. So allow me um, to get straight into it and to introduce Professor Barney Glover, who's the Vice-Chancellor of Western Sydney University, to, uh, to share with you an official welcome tonight. Barney. Uh, thank you, Leanne. Thank you very much. Welcome, everyone. It's wonderful to have so many people here uh, for such a wonderful occasion. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we're meeting this evening, the people of the Darug Nation, uh, to acknowledge their elders past and present, and to uh, give a particular welcome to anyone of Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander descent who's who is with us, joining us this evening on this land. So thank you so much for coming. It is an exciting evening, and as Leanne said, I don't want to take you uh, too long here before you get up and have a look at this, uh, this wonderful exhibition that we'll talk more about in a moment. It's my uh, pleasure, of course, just to welcome a few special guests that we have with us. Uh, Senator Jenny McAllister. Jenny, uh, congratulations on your Shadow Ministry appointment, and thank you very much for being here this, uh, this evening. Uh, Anne Stanley, MP, the member for Werriwa. Uh, the Honourable Simon Crean, who's with us this evening, the Honourable Susan Ryan, uh, members of the Whitlam family, including uh, Tony Whitlam QC and Catherine Dovey and Ken Williams AM, Kim Williams AM. Um, the folio artists, of course, and their family, and a particular, uh, a particular welcome to Bruce Petty, and Bruce is here uh, at the back of the room. Wonderful to have Bruce with us. And members of the Coburn Shaw, S-H-A-W, Shaw, S-H-O-R-E, Upward and Binder families who are here. It's great to have um, such uh, famous families represented here this evening as part of this wonderful exhibition. Our Chancellor, Professor Peter Shergold, AC, who's uh, with us uh, this evening. Uh, there are a number of members of the uh, board of the Whitlam Institute here, Gabby Trainer, Patricia Amflett, OAM as well a number of uh, distinguished fellow, fellow supporters and friends of the Whitlam Institute. Uh, in a moment, you'll hear from Rex Irwin, one of our speakers, and of course, from Professor Carrillo Gantner, AC. So, an illustrious group, and if I've missed anyone, my apologies, uh, but welcome to all, and particularly to our special guests. This exhibition that you're going to see in a few minutes, of course, is part of our university's 30-year celebrations. So, it's an important event for us, the university created in 1989 and now 30 years of age. And of course it was uh, Prime Minister Gough Whitlam, then the leader of the opposition in 1971, who made the comment that we needed a university in Western Sydney. And we certainly did. And in 2019, I'm sure he'd be proud of the university that we've become. And we're very proud of the Whitlam Institute, the Prime Ministerial Library, the Prime Ministerial Exhibition, and of course the Margaret Whitlam Galleries. And you'll see more of that in a moment. The arts, of course, are increasingly important to our university, as they are to our region. 
We're in the mo at the moment in the process of developing an arts and culture decadal strategy for the university. And I know Dola Merrilies is with us as well, and Dola is uh, pulling together that strategy for us. And the Whitlam Institute and the Margaret Whitlam Galleries are a key part of that strategy. And this new exhibition featuring the first public display, as it does, of a very unique collection of artworks, and I'm sure you'll agree when you see them. The exhibition, of course, examines a key part of the Whitlam legacy, drawn from the Whitlam Prime Ministerial Collection held by the Institute, and in this case, gifted from the family. This is going to be a terrible admission to make, but I didn't know of the existence of this folio until um, about October last year, and Leanne and John and myself and Catherine and Kim and others were at a dinner and we were discussing ways that we could um, enhance the uh, profile and develop the institute into the, to the next phase. And, and Catherine made comment, what, what are you doing with the folio? And I said, well, what folio are you referring to? And Catherine said, well, we, and I know Catherine doesn't want me to say this, but we, we tossed it around a lot at home and it'd be nice to think you were doing something with it. Um, the next day, we extracted it from the archives where it's been beautifully um, looked after, but not necessarily put on public display. And the first time I saw it was an extraordinary moment uh, with a very small group of people um, and a number of members of the board. Uh, and I think Leanne there with us at the time. And as you look through it, not having seen it and not realising just how significant this is in so many ways and in so many dimensions, uh, it is quite extraordinary. And you'll see upstairs the wonderful way we've reproduced uh, those key works from that collection as a tribute from those artists and their families to the great contribution of Gough and Margaret Whitlam to the arts. So I'm very pleased that we've found a way to bring this to light in a very public way. And I'm sure others will talk about how we'll make that uh, even more prominent uh, across Australia in the years to come. So I'm very proud of what we've been able to do. The university, of course, is equally proud of the Whitlam Institute itself and the great work that Leanne and her team are doing here inside the Female Orphan School, this, this colonial uh, heritage building that dates back to 1813, the oldest three-storey building in Australia, an incredibly important part of the heritage that our university is responsible for, and I can't think of a better place for the Whitlam Institute, Prime Ministerial Collection, and uh, the gallery and uh, exhibition to be housed. We see ourselves quite rightly and very proudly as the most important Prime Ministerial Library in this country and look forward to continuing to lead the way across Australia. Uh, the Margaret Whitlam Gallery, as I said, hosts uh, four exhibitions a year. Uh, and uh, form part of the university's uh, contribution to the arts. The exhibitions are very important artistically, historically and culturally. Uh, for example, this year we had Spy Espionage in Australia, which was incredibly popular. Many of you might have seen it. Uh, hosted by the National Archives of Australia, attracted almost 1,000 visitors, including school children from the region, and received extensive media coverage. We have um, uh, Ballander, a lasting impression, a Northern Territory exhibition coming later in the year, and we look forward to that. It is exciting to be here this evening. It is a wonderful opportunity for you and for me, because I haven't seen uh, the final product upstairs to see this uh, remarkable exhibition. Thank you so much for coming. Please welcome Leanne.
We're about to hear from our, our two wonderful guest speakers tonight, but I've, I've spoken with both of them and they're going to tell us some wonderful stories, but they're not going to speak much about the folio itself, so allow me two minutes to tell you a bit about what you're going to see upstairs. Um, obviously for us, uncovering this treasure of this folio um, from the Prime Ministerial Archive has uncovered many stories, particularly from the artists and their families. Um, I wanted to share with you some of the feedback. Um, we reached out to Rex Irwin for some advice on this folio as, a, as an artistic item and we wanted to know how do we value an item like this and, and Rex said you can value every page but you're never going to tear them out individually. These things are unique, remarkable and special. So in that sense, its value is, is really hard to determine beyond what you'll see when you go upstairs. We also asked him what is a, where does a folio like this, it seems so unique, fit in terms of, of the art world for those of us who aren't part of that world? And he said, the Whitlam folio is compiled in the tradition of the artist's book of the 19th and early 20th centuries. They were unwieldy and unsaleable, but they were made just because it was a beautiful thing to do. They were designed to sit on an easel in your library and you would turn a page a day. These books were a great tradition in the art world. They're part of the history of art. To have one donated to people who are influential in encouraging the arts is a wonderful thing. So we also learnt a lot about this particular folio from the artists and their families. Some of them can't be here with us tonight, so I'll share a little bit of what they shared with us. Um, thanks to Frank Hill, the university's um, copyright expert, we were able to get in touch with Lloyd Rees' son, Alan. Um, and when we were talking to him about whether we could display the art and the copyright issues and so on and whether we needed to make any payment um, to do so, he said the notion of charging any fees to an exhibition involving Goff would have made my father turn in his grave. <laughs> we also had some lovely conversations with Clem Millward, one of the artists who you'll see upstairs. And he shared with us that um, Roderick Shaw was the centre of the whole operation to produce the folio. He said he persisted with the project over several years, working away at it in his own time while juggling the demands of his business. Um, Roderick Shaw's daughter, Chrissy, who was going to be here with us tonight but may not have made it just yet, agreed that she was very aware of Rod's obsession to get it all together to produce the folio. And finally, Clem also told us a little bit more about the Artists for Democracy event at Paddington in 1975, just three weeks after the dismissal. You'll see a poster for the event in the exhibition upstairs, which we've also drawn from the archive. And Clem said, I was there. I shook the great man's hand. It was an artist's gathering and a tribute. It was also a highly emotional time just after he was deposed. There was a great deal of feeling in that room. I thought it was lovely to get those personal sentiments from some of the artists themselves. So with no further ado, I'm going to um, just give you a brief introduction to both of our speakers tonight and they'll speak one after the other. Rex Irwin will speak with us first this evening, a little bit about Rex. He was born in Bombay in India, educated in England and he worked in the wine trade in London. He arrived in Sydney on his 21st birthday in 1962 he worked in the wine trade for Douglas Lamb, sold encyclopedias door to door, and he said it was very important that I shared this with you, cleaned lavatories in the Sheraton Hotel. <laughs> he worked for the Barry Stern Gallery in Paddington and also for the Sydney Morning Herald as a proofreader. 
He went back to London for a time, but returned to Sydney in 1967 to the Barry Stern Gallery. From 68 to 74, he was assistant to Frank MacDonald at Clune Galleries in Macquarie Street. In 1975, he wasn't here with us, but he was living on the Greek island of Poros. He returned to Australia from, and from 76 to 2014, he managed the Rex Irwin art dealership on Queen Street in Wallara. From 2014 to 16, he was the director of the Olsen Irwin Gallery in Wallara and he retired to Kangaroo Valley in 2017. Kariya Gantner was born, is a Victorian, excuse me, is a Victorian cultural leader and philanthropist. His most well-known achievements lie in the area of founding theatres and theatre companies. He founded the Playbox Theatre in 76 and in the late 1980s was the driving force for the building of the Malthouse Theatre Complex, which opened in 1990. He was president of the Maya Foundation from 2004 to 2010 and is currently chairman of the Sydney Maya Fund, the Maya family's two philanthropic arms. Carrillo worked for the Australian Foreign Affairs Department as cultural counsellor at the Australian Embassy in Beijing from 1985 to 87. He toured many companies from China and Japan to Australia and with writer Rodney Hall was joint artistic director of the Four Winds Festival in Bermagui. His many appointments include President of the Victorian Arts Centre Trust, Chairman of the Melbourne International Arts Festival, he was Chairman of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, Chair of the Performing Arts Board and a member of the Australia Council. He was a member of the Australian International Cultural Council for three years and until 2002 he served for three years also as a member for the Cultural Network of the Australian National Commission for UNESCO. Without further ado, I'll invite Rex to come up and speak with you. Distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, anybody who comes to look at art on a cold night is a distinguished guest <laughs> in my book. Um, when I received the phone call from Leanne Smith inviting me to speak tonight, it reminded me of a call I received some years ago from a slightly more august institution, and it went something like this. Mr. Irwin, yes. Mr. Rex Irwin, yes. You are Lucian Freud's art dealer in Australia, yes. This is the president of the Oxford Union. We are organizing our guest speakers for next year. Well, at that point, I thought I had made it. <laughs> I had visions of dinner at high table, airfares, business class, that sort of thing. But the president quickly went on and said, but we want to ask Mr. Freud to speak to us next year, and would you please give us his telephone number? <coughs> so, as you see, the art world doesn't always live up to expectations. Many people think of the arts as an indulgence or an extravagance if they think of them at all. But as Mr. Whitlam said in 1975, the arts are not a luxury for the privileged elite. They belong to the whole community. They belong to the whole world. And to the Whitlams, it was part of their world, that part of their very existence. They read books, they went to the theater, and they went to exhibitions. In fact, in 1971, we met at the opera. We were Tuesday subscribers when the opera was playing at the Elizabethan Theater in Newtown. I don't believe that an enthusiasm and love of the arts can be taught but it certainly can be learned and it can be encouraged by patronage. Government patronage for the arts is enormously important. 
but generous government support can often lead to large bureaucracies, which eventually leads to the bureaucracy becoming the new academy and sometimes stifling the very arts that they are there to support. <coughs> In 1973, I was able to offer a small service to Mr. Whitlam on the occasion of the opening of the Sydney Opera House by Her Majesty the Queen. With their usual thoughtfulness, the Whitlams had organized a party for their political staff, their office staff, and their families to have a drink on the lawns of Kirribilli House before they left to meet the Queen, the Whitlams, that was, and then for us to watch the proceedings on television. When I arrived on my motorcycle after much security, because Madame Marcos was also staying at Kirribilli House, <laughs> pandemonium was raining, and a half-dressed Prime Minister was in a flap. It seems he'd left his evening shirt. This was a stiff-fronted shirt that was worn wing-collar, white tie and tails. He'd left it in Canberra, we thought. What are we going to do, says Margaret. I'll just have to wear a dinner jacket, says Goff. You can't, said Rex. Why not, said Goff. I said, because you are a Labour Prime Minister and people will think it will be an international snub to the Queen. <laughs> Any bright ideas, he said. So I asked Margaret for a pair of scissors, a can of spray starch, and an iron. I cut the collar off his evening shirt and ironed like mad and produced a pretty good simulation of a stiff-fronted evening shirt. The Prime Minister got dressed, looked very smart, and picked up his speech underneath which... So picked up his shirt, his speech, and underneath which was his shirt. <laughs> So, once he was properly dressed, the Prime Minister gave me a big hug and gave me the old collar which he signed and which is now part of the Whitlam archive here. <laughs> when I was thinking about patrons of the past, four names came to mind. The Medici, Louis XIV, Napoleon and Whitlam. <laughs> great leaders and great patrons of the arts. Now, I'm sure any similarities with these leaders and their aspirations for the arts and with his aspiration for the arts would not be lost on Mr. Whitlam, even though he may not have had the same territorial ambitions as the other three, except in Mr. Whitlam's case on behalf of Australia's first people. However, tonight I'm here under a false pretense. I'm not going to talk about the Whitlam government and their support of the arts, but rather with my private friendship with the Whitlams, particularly with Margaret Whitlam, which included our mutual interest in the arts. My connection with the Whitlams and the arts has been purely based on friendship. A few weeks after the Whitlam government was elected, Margaret asked me to go to Canberra to help her choose some pictures for the lodge to try to make it more like a prime minister's official residence rather than a cheap country motel. Sadly, this wasn't very easy. Um, this was the first time that Margaret Whitlam became big in my life. And you will realize how big when I tell you that I showed my mother a photograph of myself and Margaret, the wife of the Prime Minister of my new country, taken outside the lodge when we were working on the pictures. And she, my mother, remarked, Darling, she looks very nice, but who's the little man with her? <laughs> Aren't mothers wonderful? During my stay at the lodge, I had breakfast in bed every day, brought to me by the Prime Minister of my new country, a vision in blue pyjamas, very big blue pyjamas. 
And every day he said, as he handed me the newspaper, I'm very sorry, comrade, it's only the Australian, but it's all we can get. <laughs> One morning in Sydney, Margaret rang me when I was in my bath and said, get on your bike and see how many erect penises you can find in public places. <laughs> very few things that Margaret said to me surprised me. <laughs> But I did feel this remark deserved some um, explanation. Apparently, a poster of Michelangelo's statue of David had been seized by the police in South Australia as pornographic. And the Prime Minister was being asked a question about this in the House that afternoon. Well, in Hyde Park, there were penises everywhere. <laughs> the Archibald Fountain had a very noticeable one. And there were lots in the War Memorial. If not erect, certainly heroic. <laughs> you should have heard the Prime Minister in question time. Armed with my information, he was dazzling. Arrogant, amusing, and erudite. And I'm glad to say, good old Mr. Hansard made a note of it all. <laughs> Late in 1973, I did one minus artistic triumph with the Whitlams. I suggested that the Prime Minister use blue poles on his official Christmas card, and I'm delighted to say he did. And in so doing, it removed the picture from criticism and from the ridicule to which it had been exposed. It sent a message to the world that things were changing in Australia, and they were. And I'm delighted to say my friendship still extends to the younger members of the Whitlam family, and I understand it was Catherine Dovey that was instrumental in asking me here tonight. Margaret often used to write me chatty notes, which I've donated to the Whitlam archive, so I thought I would conclude by quoting my friend Margaret Whitlam. Quote, I'm afraid I have to stop now, as Catherine must be hungry, and I have to feed her. <laughs> Close quote. Aren't mothers wonderful? <laughs> Good evening. I have no penis jokes, uh, but uh, thank you for the invitation to speak here this evening. I actually feel a bit of a fraud in this uh, distinguished company uh, with the Whitlam family and, and the aura of Goth hovering around us. Uh, compared with many, my intersections with Goth are somewhat slender. I can lay claim to being a devoted fan, uh, to have been a lifelong beneficiary of Goff's investment of money, status, and structure in the arts, to have travelled with Goff twice in China during my term as cultural counsellor at the Australian Embassy there in the mid-'80s, and to be the nephew of the man who, had he accepted Goff's first invitation to be the Governor-General, would quite probably have changed the course of Australian history. In April, I gave a lecture here at this university as Australia-China Institute for Arts and Culture. The general thrust of the lecture was that you could be a panda hugger, that is, someone who was attracted to many aspects of China and, in my case, have a particular attraction to the performing arts of China, while at the same time also being a sturdy, patriotic Australian, or as I called it, a koala hugger. 
Almost like my professional life in the theatre, my lecture started with Gough because when I returned to Australia in 1969 after my graduate theatre studies at Stanford University to work at the Adelaide Festival, Gough was on the rise towards the prime ministership. Coming out of the hothouse liberalities and flower power of California during the Vietnam War, straight into the rather drab conformities of Adelaide, Gough seemed to, be, to me to be a figure of heroic proportions in every sense. A huge physical presence, of course, but more importantly, a man of enormous imagination, vivid intelligence, deep compassion, and utter charisma. And that was Goff's description. No. Uh, <laughs> it's almost unkind uh, to mention that the political comparator was William McMahon, a little man in every sphere where Goff was grand. I was first married in November 1972. My wedding then to a fellow drama student from my Stanford class took place in the garden of my grandmother's property in central Victoria. I used the occasion of my wedding speech to give a passionate rallying call for the election of Goff's Labour team. My grandmother loved me dearly, but this was too much uh, for her very conservative bones, so she hopped into her car and drove back to Melbourne and missed most of the wedding. She was subsequently ambushed again by her eldest child, my uncle Ken Meyer, who with a group of prominent Australians from many different fields, signed a famous letter just before the election saying it was time for a change of government and for the election of Gough. Being a very senior business leader at the time as chairman of the Meyer department store business, it was Ken Meyer's name that was trumpeted by the press as having turned against the Conservatives, the natural ally of business. As I said in my April letter, it was a truly exciting time to be young when Gough was finally elected in 1972 after the long years of Conservative political torpor in Australia. In his first week in office, when only he and the Treasurer Lance Barnard had been sworn into Cabinet holding 27 ministries between them, Gough did three extraordinary things towards which the majority of young Australians like myself had been working for some years. He began the process towards recognition of the People's Republic of China. He ended conscription and withdrew Australian troops from the quagmire of the Vietnam War. Not a bad week's work. As the English poet William Wordsworth wrote in relation to the start of the French Revolution, Bliss was it in that dawn to be alive, and to be young was very heaven. I was in fact working as the very first drama officer at the Australia Council in North Sydney at the time of Gough's election uh, in, early, in early December 1972. I'd been in this role since July 1970 when I moved across from Adelaide to work with the Council at the invitation of the Council's founding executive officer, Dr. Jean Battersby. Everyone thinks that Gough established the council, but in fact it's not so. It was initially legislated by the Labor, sorry, by the Liberal Prime Minister Harold Holt in 1967, just before he drowned in the wild surf near Portsea. 
Then in 1968, Holt's successor as Prime Minister, John Gorton, made it a division of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, incorporating within the Council other government arts programs such as the Commonwealth Literary Fund and the Commonwealth Art Advisory Board. Gorton stepped down in 1971 when he suffered a humiliating tie with Billy McMahon in a confidence vote within the Liberal Party. In May 1971, Peter Howson was appointed as the minister responsible for the new Department of Aborigines, Environment and the Arts. The council was part of this new department and new letterheads were printed for every branch until some wag uh, promptly christened this the Department of Abofarts. Excuse me, but uh, that was the times. Uh, so the names had to be shuffled quickly and we became the Department of the Environment, Aborigines and the Arts. Peter Housen felt this was a demotion from his previous role as Minister for Air under Menzies. He was expecting to be rewarded by McMahon for supporting him against Gordon. But after his appointment to the new ministry, he was reported publicly as commenting that the little bastard gave me trees, bungs, and pufters. As an aside, I, I note uh, that I think it's very curious that the Liberals have never claimed credit for establishing the council, but perhaps they were too embarrassed by the miserable status and support that they gave it at the beginning, a tradition which sadly continues to the present day. When I went to work at the council, it had a staff of seven, and this number included Jean Battersby as the executive officer, a sole uh, administrative officer, and myself as drama officer. The others were a project officer for music, for film, for dance, and for special projects. The chairman, of course, was Dr. Nugget Coombs, small in stature, but a titan of the public service, who is said to have served under seven Australian prime ministers, including Gough. To the great joy of artists and the great benefit of the country, what Gough did do in 1973 was to turn the Australia Council into a new statutory body, the Australia Council for the Arts, at arm's length from government interference and control, with the doubling of its budget in its first year and another 50% the next, and with artists at the centre of decision-making by being a majority on the various art form boards that made the grant decisions. So much good has flowed to Australia from this transformative act, this consummation devoutly to be wished, as Hamlet called it. The creation of the Aboriginal Arts Board, made up entirely of Indigenous artists, was especially noteworthy, not least because it led to a complete re-evaluation of Indigenous art and its elevation across the Australian community. I attribute my own interest in this area to the advocacy of Jennifer Isaacs, the first Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island Arts Officer at the New Council, and of course to Nugget Coombs himself, who backed Jenny to travel the country opening the first Indigenous art centres in remote Aboriginal communities across the North. My whole career in the performing arts grew from my experience of this exciting time and the resulting flowering of the Australian art scene. I had a very privileged position with a ringside seat through my work at the Council, 
through which Goss' democratic philosophy and financial largesse was delivered. I was able to travel the country meeting everyone who was anyone in the theatre scene of the day, devising programs to support them through company and project grants, and in states where professional theatre companies did not yet exist, like Queensland and South Australia, to assist in their creation. If the election of the Whitlam government was very heaven, the dismissal in 1975 was a sickening trauma inflicted on the body politic and felt by many of us not only as a national shame, uh, but also as a deeply personal sorrow. The Whitlam government may have grown somewhat chaotic and been damaged by its economic management, but for so many young people like myself, it inspired an intensity of loyalty and almost a feeling of love. It seems to me that the passionate involvement of the young today in today's climate change debate is the first time since Goff that I've felt this same broad intensity of feeling among the young around a political issue. The Neanderthal forces of reaction against climate science could also be said to be reminiscent of the forces that pushed Goff out, but we won't go there tonight. My life in the theatre led me into a parallel universe of dealing with Asia, and most especially with China. Having brought various Chinese performing companies on tour to Australia and taken Australian theatre delegations to China since 1978, I gave up my job as artistic director of the Playbox Theatre Company to take on the role of cultural counsellor at our embassy in Beijing in early 1985. One of the great experiences of my time in Beijing was twice to travel around China, accompanying Goff in his new role as chairman of the Australia-China Council. On one of these trips, he was accompanied by his wife, Margaret, and by his then personal secretary, Mark Latham. I recall meeting them at the bottom of the stairs as they came off the plane at Beijing Airport. You couldn't do that today. <coughs> Mark thought that he was too grand to carry Goff's briefcase and insisted that the embassy staff should carry it for him. Goff thought that the sun shone out of Mark's derriere, but Margaret couldn't stand him. As Goff's introduction of Mark's became more and more grandiloquent at each subsequent meeting, Margaret's less than subtle interjections and coughing put Goff on notice putting Goff on notice became more and more obvious. I have to tell you that the embassy staff were all on Margaret's team. <laughs> Everywhere we were treated like kings because the Chinese remembered that Goff had gone to China in 1971, even before Henry Kissinger was sent as Nixon's emissary. And he'd brought about diplomatic recognition well before the Americans. I took note at notes at Goff's meeting with Deng Xiaoping, who chain-smoked and spat into a spittoon between their chairs, while Goff paused his question in mid-air, allowing the phlegm to drop into the spittoon before he continued. Also, for his meeting with Premier Li Peng, who was a dry technocrat, who was no match for Goff's supple mind. We travelled in motorcades and were accommodated in state guest houses in the, uh, in the presidential suite of five-star hotels. In Shanghai, we were accommodated in the same suites with huge black marbled bathrooms that President Nixon had occupied on his visit to China in February 72. 
They gutted a cabin and built a special long bunk for Goff when we travelled down the Yangtze on the ferry, the East is Red, number 52. As we cruised down through the Three Gorges, the weather was foul, with sleet and rain making it too miserable to stand on the front deck outside the first class lounge. Instead, we sat in the lounge looking out through the rain-streaked windows and the mountains clouded in heavy, the mountains shrouded in heavy clouds as in a traditional Chinese ink paintings. For several hours, we enjoyed the privilege of talking intimately with Goff. I recall asking him a question without notice. Why did Ken Meyer turn down your offer to be Governor General? Ah, said Goff, you can read about that in my biography. <laughs> but of course, that's not the real story. So I asked him what was the real story, because none of it was on the, in the public domain, let alone know, known to Ken's own family. At this point, Goff reeled off the contents of Ken Meyer's letter to him of 12 years earlier, not word for word, but paragraph by paragraph. After the role of Governor General, what could I do as I'd not be able to go back into the Meyer business? My children would not want to transfer to schools in Canberra. My wife has an academic career and she doesn't want me to move, etc., etc. I, I could tell that Goff was visualizing each paragraph of the letter in his extraordinary mind. Of course, none of these excuses were the real reason, said Goff regretfully. The real reason was that he had started a relationship with a Japanese artist, Yasuko Hiraoka, and he didn't want this to be on the front page of every paper. It was an extraordinary feat of memory and was not the last on this trip. In Xi'an, our Chinese minders took us out to the south of the city to see the giant wild goose pagoda. The local guide told us proudly that this beautiful Buddhist shrine was built in 652 AD in the Tang Dynasty under the reign of Emperor Gaozong. Goff reflected for a moment and then said, 652, that was the year of the Battle of, and he reeled off the name of some obscure battle in the Arab-Byzantine War, which none of us had ever heard of, but we were certainly not going to contradict him because we knew he was very likely to be right. I'm going to cut a story now because I realize you're all standing and uh, uh, you can read it in my lecture uh, from the April uh, uh, lecture. Um, about eight years ago, I had a, a coffee with Jim Spiegelman, who'd been a friend when I lived in Sydney and worked at the Australia Council in the early 70s. At that, at that time, Jim was Goff's personal secretary when he was leader of the opposition. In more recent years, of course, he'd been, Jim had been Chief Justice of the New South Wales Supreme Court. I asked him how Goff was getting on in the Sydney nursing home where he was seeing out his last years. I recall Jim saying that Goff was losing it a bit, but was still quite remarkable. 
You have to remember, said Jim, that Gough has a lot more synapses to lose than most of us. <laughs> there was another brief story from the nursing home that confirms this assessment. Gough was sitting in his wheelchair when a nurse saw one of his sons walking down the corridor to visit him. It might be you. <laughs> Here comes your son, said the nurse brightly. How many sons do you have, Mr. Whitlam? She asked. Only three, so far, he said. <laughs> Thank you so much for those wonderful memories. Uh, let me introduce now a man who needs no introduction but should be known to you all as the very incredible and supportive chair of the Whitlam Institute, the Honourable John Faulkner, to make some closing remarks. Well, thank you, Leanne, to all the distinguished guests who are here, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, let me also begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of this land and by paying my respects to their elders past and present. Well, the Whitlam Institute, located here in this uh, wonderful and important historic building, unites two great passions of Gough Whitlam, education and the delivery and development of services to the suburbs of Western Sydney. But of course, as you've heard tonight from our speakers, Gough is remembered for much more. We all know that Gough Whitlam was the Prime Minister of Universal Healthcare, Aboriginal land rights, diplomatic relations with China, an end to conscription and rights for women. But on a night like this, as we open this exhibition, we should not forget his advocacy and commitment, often accompanied by absolutely howls of criticism, to a program for the arts and culture that united the practical and the romantic, the suburban and the international. He supported the arts and artists. And think of this. On the one hand, Gough Whitlam, a vital and close engagement with Australian cultural life was a real passion. It was a passion that never waned. But on the other hand, in many ways, Gough was the first Prime Minister of the suburbs. He led Labor to victory on a platform that contained a great many prosaic commitments, transport, health, housing costs, education, telephone services, sewerage. And I hope that uh, this event, this opening, uh, will remind us that the, the life of the suburbs and the life of the mind are not inevitably separated. They are inextricably linked. And remind us, of course, that Australians do feel pride in our culture, that there is an interest in our lives being explored and our stories being told in every kind of cultural and artistic form. I hope 
that an event like tonight will remind us that over recent years, we've not celebrated enough our national artistic and cultural life, which is such an important part of the generous, cosmopolitan, vital nation that we know Australia can be. And I also hope that tonight will remind us that governments, governments can sustain their nation's creative communities and governments can promote and foster artists' efforts depicting an authentic Australian voice. Ladies and gentlemen, before his death, uh, Gough made his enduring hope clear that the Whitlam Institute would uphold the abiding interests of his long public life. He said these words, the Whitlam Institute exists to help in the great and continuing work of building a more equal, open, tolerant and independent Australia. And I can assure you that here at the Institute we work hard to fulfil that ambition. Now, um, I've always got to be frank with people at events such as this in stressing that the challenges we face in continuing uh, the, the inst inst Institute's critically important work are very substantial. Um, how important it is for us to do things such as increase access to our magnificent prime ministerial collection unsurpassed anywhere in Australia. How important it is to continue to engage with the community, particularly with uh, kids from right around the country and our very successful civics education programs. And of course, continue with our influential policy work. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, to sustain the Institute and the collection into the future, we will continue to ask for support. Your support, the support of the community and the support of government. So I'd ask, of course, if you're able, to please consider supporting the work that we do. Now, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the launch tonight of Dedicated to the Dedicated Whitlam, the Arts and Democracy, is, is yet another step forward for the Institute with this first ever public display of such a wonderful collection of artworks. Um, as we've heard, uh, this came about as a result of our uh, Whitlam family board member, uh, Catherine Dovey, uh, just inquiring here at, uh, at a discussion we were having, as Barney has mentioned, uh, about the folio of artworks that were gifted by a grateful arts community uh, to her parents way back then in 1979. And the, if you like, the rediscovery of the, of the folio uh, following uh, Catherine's uh, inquiry has led to this event, uh, this exhibition, this opening tonight. To the artists and their families whose permissions have, been, have made this exhibition possible, and to the exhibition's curator, Guy Betts, and everyone who contributed to the exhibition uh, and the content of the exhibition, we sincerely 
thank you all. And I particularly uh, acknowledge, of course, Bruce Petty, one of the original contributors to the folio, who's uh, joined us tonight. To our guest speakers, uh, thank you both so much. Uh, we're honoured to have had you speak uh, at this launch tonight. Um, uh, simply put, uh, uh, and I, I talked uh, to uh, Carido about pronunciation of his um, given name. He said, anything will do. Use the Aussie Carrillo's, OK. But um, to, to you, Carrillo, uh, you are without question a cultural leader in this nation. And thank you so much for being with us. And of course, there has been no better known art dealer uh, in this country than Rex Irwin. I've got to say, however, Rex, that I mentioned to you that I'd read in a uh, Sydney Morning Herald piece where Rex himself expressed uh, a somewhat different view after retiring from his famous gallery. He's quoted in the aforementioned Sydney Morning Herald. I don't know how reliable the quote is because it's a Sydney Morning Herald. Rex said this, a woman said to me the other day, are you the Rex Irwin? And I said, no, I used to be. <laughs> as always, uh, to you, uh, Barney, uh, Vice Chan as Barney uh, Glover as Vice Chancellor of the University, thank you to uh, the University. I must say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that this institute is encouraged and strongly supported uh, by Western Sydney University itself. And that successful relationship, uh, now of course in place since our establishment, really forms the bedrock for the work of the Whitlam Institute. Thanks, of course, to all our uh, institute uh, staff, to our director and everyone else who's been involved in uh, ensuring that an occasion like this works so well. To our staff and our archivists, I thank you very sincerely. But to you, ladies and gentlemen, finally, on behalf of the Whitlam Institute, I really do thank you for sharing this experience with us. And please continue to enjoy the evening. Thank you for listening to the Whitlam Institute podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter as we continue Goff's work and in the great man's words, maintain your enthusiasm.